the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Hi, everybody. Lindsay, this is a movie I think for like two years we've talked about doing. We know we have to like watch the movie multiple times. And <laughs> this is a movie that I both love, but also it's like it can be a difficult watch. And that's David Cronenberg's The Fly. And I'm, But I'm glad we're finally doing it for the podcast. I know we've talked about doing this in season one. And it's always a treat to watch this film. But yeah, it's a difficult one. There's something about this movie with the the isolation that's going on. It's like we haven't Mm. been able to be in the same room recording for so long. Like we're still recording remotely. And I don't know. It's there's there was certain moments of watching this movie is like kind of like a weird because the character being so isolated in this movie and kind of like turning into something that can't be around other people. Yeah. In a very devastating way. I think one of the greatest things about this movie is that it is dealing with such universal, timeless themes of the human condition that it's never going to not feel like it's appropriate for the time. And so in the middle of you know a time when hundreds of thousands of people are dying during this pandemic, watching a movie like The Fly, it's... Um, it has a little bit more weight behind it. But nevertheless, it is nice to watch a work of fiction. It might be hard to watch in some ways, but the feats involved in this movie as far as like technologically and their performances, it is such a rich, all-encompassing film. I, I, I don't ever get tired of it. Yeah, we're, we're going to get into all that. We're going to get into the creation, the behind-the-scenes, the long journey it took to go from script to screen. We'll talk a little bit about uh, that this was adapted from a short story, that this was a remake of a movie. You know, one, I think, uh, I'll say, and I think you agree with me, Lindsay, probably in the top three best remakes of all time. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, you and I have said that, like, before, like, The Blob, The Fly. These are movies that were worthy of a remake and did them in... Not so much like wanting to recreate exactly what happened, but totally reinvented what the movie was. And, of course, our favorite thing to always talk about, and that's the cast and uh, the cast working with director David Cronenberg. We'll get into that as well. A lot of themes and... There's a lot of fun effects in this movie, and we don't just mean like the pulling of the fingernails. Like, there's a lot of really cool things that they did to make this movie look flawless, especially for 1986. Yeah, I'm not like a gargantuan science fiction fan. Um, I love horror, but this is uh, one of my favorite blends of like science fiction and horror. I I really have grown to love this movie so much over the last uh, few weeks. You know, watching it for the episode. It still is such a rough ending for me. I mean, it's, you know, not as rough as like Dancer in the Dark ending, but I just feel like I was just like punched. <laughs> but I think any movie that leaves you feeling like really having an intense feeling, whether that's like, you know, happiness or extreme sadness, like that's the mark of a good film. Absolutely. Well, uh, so much to talk about with The Fly. Uh, we'll also get into our picks of the week. I uh, stayed with a Jeff Goldblum movie 
And I think you did as well, didn't you? I sure did. I stayed with the Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis movie. Wow. Thank you very much. I uh, I did not. I went uh, I went Jeff Goldblum with Cindy Lauper, uh, 1988's Vibes. Very solid choice. I'm so happy you did this. And it's kind of fun, too, because it pairs pretty well with what my pick was, uh, which was uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. Two very unique movies that Jeff Goldblum did in 1988. Some real wacky ones. I'm looking forward to our picks. And uh, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. But uh, before we get into our first clip from The Fly, as always, Lindsay, can you give us your interpretation, your take on what this movie's about? You know I love to. Well, The Fly is about the story of a journalist who discovers the story of the century. She meets and becomes a documentarian for a scientist on the verge of completing the world's first fully functional teleporter. Their professional intimacy quickly becomes all-consuming, and they fall in love. But when the scientist decides to unsafely teleport himself, a fly slips into the machine, thus fusing fly and human together on a molecular level. Appearing to have only gained positive qualities, he begins a gradual transformation into a hybrid, exhibiting fly-like qualities, but in a mutated human form, horrifying the journalist who has since become his girlfriend, as she's left to watch her love deteriorate and transform into a monster. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Quite a disturbing love story. Yes, it is. It is. I like that we chose to do this for the month of February. Valentine's week. (laughs) Yeah, Valentine's week. This is what we think of Valentine's Day. (laughs) Sounds of lambs followed by the fly. Um, I mean... You know, not everybody's story is the same. They're, they're unconventional love stories. Some are all about love, actually. Others like to watch The Fly to really solidify what true love is. How far will you go, Justin? For love. Even though Goldblum totally writes her off right right away. Yeah. You're just jealous! I mean, to be fair, there were a lot of scenes that were deleted out that further developed their relationship, you know. They didn't delete that scene of him going to a bar and picking up a hooker, though. (laughs) No, they sure didn't. She wasn't a hooker. No, she was not a hooker. How about that denim jacket that she just, like, keeps on the whole time? That is really something. He went to a bar that was, like, three years in the past. and then (laughs) It was just your standard Toronto bar. I think it was that red light that made you think she was a hooker. She wasn't. I think it's time we go to a clip. Maybe just, like, noises of a, like, spitting up fly goo. Maybe we'll, I'll find something that's not so disgusting. Okay. All right. We'll go to a clip from the fly. We'll be right back. We'll talk about it. So I asked the computer if it had improved me and it said it didn't know what I was talking about. And that's made me think very carefully about what I've been feeling and why. And I'm beginning to think that the sheer process of being taken apart atom by atom and put back together again. Why it's like coffee being put through a filter. It's somehow a purifying process. It's purified me. It's cleansed me. And I'll tell you, I think it's going to allow me to realize the personal potential I've been neglecting all these years that I've been obsessively pursuing goal after goal. Do you normally take coffee with your sugar? What? You know, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen... 
and not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individually. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true, I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter! I mean, what an accomplishment. But what have I really done, though? All I've done is say to the world, let's go, move, catch me if you can. Waiter, Jesus Christ. So like a lot of movies, The Fly had a long gestation period. It didn't really evolve from one particular person, which in some ways is surprising to me because David Cronenberg is very much a writer-director. You know, he's not a director for hire um, and this is one of, I think, the few movies where, you know, he was brought on after the movie was already in production with a separate writer and a separate director. But the movie itself, uh, like we said, is a remake. Um, it's based off of uh, the movie The Fly that came out in the 50s. There was also subsequently two other Fly movies that came out after The Fly. I'll admittedly say I haven't watched those. I, I tried to squeeze those in before we got to this episode, and I did not accomplish that. Return of the Fly and Curse of the Fly. If you like the speed of the 1958 original, and you like the idea, the story, I say watch them. Why not? Um, I think Curse of the Fly definitely veers off from Return and, and the original, but if you're into it and they're definitely dealing with mutations, they're worthy. But I think the 58, I enjoy that movie. I kind of always have Vincent Price returns for the second. You know, Vincent Price is wonderful. I have to say at the end of the 1958 when the ending is, um, I just wonder what people felt about when they saw this like tiny head on a fly body that was about ready to be eaten by a giant tarantula that really obviously did not fit in this web. But there were a lot of things that in 1958, maybe you thought that they worked and it was completely believable for a movie. Watching it now, there are just too many things that happen. You just think, I don't know how I can take this seriously. But but, but think about it. Like we talk about all the time in this podcast, like think about the time in which these movies were made, you know? When we did The Blob, you know, we talked about The Blob, 50s version and the fly 50s version were ripe for remakes because they're so of that time period and so of that trend in what was big for Hollywood movies like what was successful is like you know gigantic monsters or people shrinking or people getting big or people coming into contact with some sort of like radioactive thing and like changing their body shape and structure I think the updated blob is better than the one that came out in the 50s I think the updated fly is more unique and better than the one that came out in the 50s I consider these the best remakes of all time and I think the key is is that they took a movie that was popular but improved upon it like you know how can we develop this story more and I think with the fly they made it more of a story that was like less about a guy who's just like totally turns into a monster i mean that essence is still there jeff goldblum does turn into a monster but he does hold on to some humanity and the audience is taken along for a longer ride you know he's still like part human he can still communicate with the audience mm -hmm. and communicate with 
um, his girlfriend, Gina Davis. And in The Fly, the original Fly, that's not so much the case. He uh, loses a lot of those senses of communication early on in the movie and, and kind of just becomes like almost like a Frankenstein type monster. Yeah, exactly. And in the 58 original, it's more of a of a head swap that it's just instantaneous fly versus a gradual progression that we see Jeff Goldblum go through in the in Cronenberg's 86 remake. So it just really took that original story and improved upon it. And that story was actually published just uh, about a year before in 57 as a short story in Playboy and kind of picked up some traction and was republished in many other publications subsequently. Uh, But then that 58 version happened. So with this movie coming out, you know, what is it? 30 years prior, it was ripe for a remake. So it was presented to the story uh, was brought to um, screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue. Um, He's brought the story by Kip Oman. And he says, I think you're the guy to get this story remade. It's due for a remake. What do you think about it? And Pogue says, you know, I like horror. Um, It's not really the genre that I write for, but let me see. Let me, let me do some investigations. So he goes to producer Stuart Kornfeld and says, what do you think about remaking this? Kornfeld loves the idea, agrees to do it, but also knows that the rights to the fly are owned by Fox coincidentally there's a lot of weird coincidences that that happen with the making of this movie he has a production deal that there isn't anything really attached to with fox so he goes to fox and says what do you think if we make this deal into remaking the fly fox gives it the green light and the initial screenplay starts with cornfeld and charles edward pogue now initially the screenplay does kind of follow the original format of the short story of the first film. And Kornfeld thought it needs to be more of a metamorphosis story. Like he wants to see more of the gradual progression that we talked about already. Like we don't want to see an instantaneous fly or a fly head. We don't want a head swap type of thing. Where the story lies is in the gradual metamorphosis of this character. So they come up with a screenplay present it to Fox, and initially Fox just hates it. Uh, and they also refuse to hand over the rights when Kornfeld says, okay, you don't like it, but can we like still do it another way? And they say, well, okay, we'll agree to distribution of the movie, but you've got to find yourself funding. Okay. Kornfeld goes to a friend of his that he had worked with on The Elephant Man. And you might know a guy by the name of Mel Brooks. So Mel Brooks has Brooks films, He goes to him, presents him with the script. Mel Brooks got through 10 pages of the script and called Kornfeld and said, you know, what is this piece of crap? I don't want to, this is, this is terrible. And he says, well, did you actually finish it? And he's like, no. (laughs) So he finishes it. And then by the end of it says, okay, I'm all about this, but I need a rewrite. I want a rewrite. And maybe Charles Edward Pogue isn't the guy to do it. So he's removed from the project. And there are multiple attempts at rewriting the script um, that kind of starts happening. So at this point, they think, okay, we've got some traction here. We've got funding. We've got distribution. Let's look for a director. First choice, David Cronenberg. That's who Kornfeld is going for. Now, at the time, Cronenberg was involved with a production of Total Recall for a good year. So he's unavailable. So they got to move on. 
And their second choice is a director named Robert Bierman. He was a relatively new filmmaker, had had some films under his belt. He gets this script and is really excited about it and wants to make it like the best movie that's ever been made, just really becomes committed to it and is all about it. So there's, again, excitement. We're going to do this. And then like the world's weirdest, most tragic thing happens in this man's life. Unimaginable. So Bierman is working on production with The Fly and his family is in South Africa. I don't know if they're just vacationing or what. He wasn't with them and very far away. And his daughter is killed in an accident. So he hears about this. I just like can't imagine this like hearing about it and not being with your family. It's just such a terrible feeling. So understandably, he says, hey, I got to go for a little bit. He leaves and everyone, you know, involved understands um, he leaves for a good month. Now, remember at this time, also, like The Fly had kind of a lot going for it. It was the only movie that was in production at Fox. So they had everything at their disposal. So they had a really good setups. And now, I mean, this is a, a tragic, awful thing to happen. And they're kind of at a standstill and they really want to go with Robert Bierman. He was their second choice. They're excited about him. So they say, okay, you got to be away for a little bit. We'll give you a month, you know? And he comes back a month later and says, look, I think I've lost my desire to do this, especially with a lot of the themes involved in the movie that, I mean, it's a lot of like death and mortality and it's, there's a lot of darkness in this movie and Mel Brooks isn't exactly enthusiastic about him leaving so he says okay we don't want to lose you we're going to hold it for three months and then at the end of that three months you let us know which i mean i don't work in the film industry but that seems unimaginable to me it's pretty incredible that brooks did that i mean it also shows too how passionate robert bierman must have been yeah and it just seems so um like everybody had their heart in the right spot um and then at the end of that three months, um, Beerman comes back and says, I'm really sorry, but I, I don't have what I can give. I can do this. I know I'm contractually obligated to you guys and I can do it, but my heart's not going to be in it. And it's not the product that I would want to put out. And I don't think it's the product that you want. And again, <laughs> Mel Brooks completely understands and releases the dude from his contract, like with no issue. It just, I don't know, there's just something really admirable about that and something that I don't know if would even happen today. I would hope that that would happen today, but it just shows some real caring to happen in the matter. So the production is, again, at a standstill. We've got a flawed script, no director, a weird, <laughs> weird, um, haunted kind of tainted vibe around the production and i think uh, there was also some talk that brooks films and fox were having some issues and there was just a lot of money on the line and they didn't just want to throw it away like they'd already put work into this and time into this so when you've got a lot of writing on the line you know what do you do you hope for a <laughs> miracle in some ways and that is kind of what happened to this production. So at the same time as this was going down, 
the um, total recall production really takes a major shift. And Cronenberg is having some disagreements with Dino De Laurentiis, and they decide to split ways. Cronenberg leaves the project, and word gets back to, I don't remember if it was Mel Brooks or, or Stuart Kornfeld, but either way, Kornfeld approaches Cronenberg and says, hey, you're free now. What do you think about doing the fly? And Cronenberg says, and maybe this is, I got the drift that this was because he was coming off of Total Recall that he said, look, I'll direct the movie, but only if I can do the rewrite. That's the only way that I will do it. And I want $750,000 to do it. It sounds pretty demanding, but you have to imagine he worked for a year of his life on Total Recall. (laughs) I feel like he got burned and he didn't get any credit for Total Recall. And there's a lot of Cronenberg in that movie. So... Mel Brooks and Stuart Kornfeld know that this is basically their shot to make this work. And one way or another, got to get it done. So Mel Brooks lobbies really hard to get more funding for this film. And and he asks for a million dollars and gets it. I guess he wrote like this very impassioned letter saying, this is why we need this. This is the only way that it's going to happen. And it totally worked. Kornfeld said it was the fastest deal made in Hollywood. They went to Cronenberg and said, hey, dude, um, you know that $750,000 he wanted? Well, how about a million? And Cronenberg just was like, where do I sign? So that was where kind of everything turned around for the production of The Fly. Kind of crazy start to the beginning, but really started something incredible for this movie. And, you know, if you're thinking about uh, Robert Bierman, which I was after, you know, reading the story, um, he did go on to continue and have a career in, in film and television. Like three years after, you know, he didn't get to make The Fly, he made Vampire's Kiss which um, I think has like kind of a cult following. And then um, recently uh, directed episodes of The Walking Dead. So a tragedy, but didn't uh, completely um, end his career in film and television. Such a weird time. And it's like one of those things that happens that um, there's nothing you can really do about it. You just kind of got to accept what's happening. And it's also feels weird that it was on a movie that it deals with such heavy themes of mortality, you know? And with Cronenberg, you get him involved. He's very particular about, like, all of his movies are shot in Canada. And if I'm not mistaken, in Toronto, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm I'm certain Fox was probably, you know, trying to make it look as American as possible. I mean, if anything, I feel like once you get Cronenberg involved, you've got someone dedicated to fixing the script. You've got a competent director, and you've got someone that says... I always shoot in one place, so we're going to shoot it there. And Kornfeld knows that Cronenberg generally works with like the same crew and starts contacting people that Cronenberg had worked with in the past and says, hey, pretty sure I want to come to you. I need to run this by Cronenberg, but we need to uh, assemble a crew to do a remake of The Fly. And so basically like the same production designer, editor, cameraman, uh, director of photography, like makeup effects, even composer that Cronenberg had worked with in the past just brought the same cast of characters in to work with him. And I think it seemed destined that this movie was going to push forward and really had somebody that could um, really pave that way into the reinvention um, that this tale of the fly needed. I've said this on many an episode, but I always appreciate a director who 
continues to use the same crew that they worked early on in their career. Also, too, like The Fly was a big movie for Cronenberg, but I mean, he had done, uh, you know, The Dead Zone, he had done Videodrome, he had done Scanners. Like, these were movies that, you know, had a substantial budget and got like big theatrical releases. So I, I think it was like a, a perfect director to come in, a built in crew, everybody that everybody's comfortable. It's a perfect recipe. And when you have a director coming from, you know, the likes of Rabbit and Scanners and Videodrome, The Brood, you know, even in, in the dead zone, the material involved in the fly, I mean, it just fits perfectly. It's no wonder he was kind of like the first choice and they thought that they that they couldn't get him. The type of story that's involved in this, it just really played to Cronenberg's strengths that we had already seen in his previous films. You know, you think of Cronenberg, you're like body horror. He's the body horror director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, established that early on, like even with his first film, uh, Rabid. But The Fly, I think, is like on a grand scale. We are seeing like a general horror type movie of like a monster, but also a body horror type movie of someone, you know, relating to like if you had an illness, you know, and you're and you're like seeing changes in your body that, you know, is like very intimate and very scary and like, oh, this isn't good, you know, like with his fingernails falling off. Uh, when he's starting to make those first transitions into becoming the fly and and not really like 100% aware of like what caused it or what's going on. Like he doesn't have that information yet. If you get an ailment or something, you know, your mind goes to like the worst possible thing. So there's a lot of stuff in the fly that is very relatable in that body horror way that Cronenberg does time and time again with other movies where he is like setting the tone for mortality and like thinking about your health or thinking about your body and how maybe you don't think about it or you're abusing it. But then when something goes wrong, it can like shift your whole mindset on like your life and what you're going to do. And <laughs> It's just such like a like a quick flip. And he's able to really, I think, harness that anxiety that that we get in that that horror, that scary feeling of uh, anguish of like, you know, oh, what if something happens to, you know, me or like I get sick again, especially like right now with it. You know, every time I hear somebody cough, you know, I'm like, wait, what are you sick? (laughs) Cronenberg really taps into that. And I think the fly is like a great example of that, like slow descent into um body horror and then into like the real sci-fi horror that that the fly is like known for yeah he's not afraid of darkness and combining a lot of elements whether it's yeah whether it is something like body horror and then how that mixes with our fear of disease or fear of dying but these these primal fears i mean hell even the fear of like we see later in the movie when gina davis's ronnie or veronica character is pregnant right and she um has a pregnancy fear you know and that we see in the movie she's has a dream about giving birth to a giant maggot um like all of these like very very primal fears that are exhibited um, and here just play to something that is relatable to people. And when it's manifested for you on screen, it's a little, you know, it's horrifying. It is, but it's something that you can go, well, yeah, I've maybe had a nightmare or something yeah. like that before. And Cronenberg is also a perfect person to combine this theme of like a sexual awakening and interweaving that into um, a story about. Uh, a, a rebirth or becoming something else or turning into something else, a metamorphosis, a transformation of one's personal identity from one thing from when 
Jeff Goldblum, Seth Brundle, the scientist, is, you know, kind of like a, a geek. You know, he's a geek. He's quiet. He has kind of a godlike complex. One could say he's probably like a 50-year-old virgin. <laughs> you know, who knows? But he definitely has a... Um, once he teleports himself, unfortunately, with a fly, he emerges from that pod built, you know, and not not in like a not in like a, you know, Schwarzenegger like built way. But we see him and it's like, oh, who is this man that's outside of his tweed jacket? This uh, little nerdy scientist who looks totally hot all of a sudden. Yeah, these things that are, are common to us all interwoven into this story. But told through the lens of a science fiction horror uh, fantastical journey it, it almost makes it like okay to talk about such deep themes and themes that no one wants to talk about I mean, like transformations like what, what Gina Davis said uh, that Cronenberg explained to her that said that your your character of Veronica and Seth like your relationship is think of if you loved someone and they got cancer or they came down with some debilitating disease and started turning into someone that you, you know, didn't know and or that you know, but like just physically they began to change and you feel like each and every day, like you, you lost a part of them, that horror that, you know, that emotional anguish that you go through knowing that you still you love that person. That's never going to go away, but you know that they're they're disappearing before your eyes. And Cronenberg, <laughs> you and I, Justin, we both got a kick out of this. Cronenberg saying like, if you were to describe this this movie to someone um, and not say it was like a horror or a science fiction movie, and just be like, boy meets girl, guy starts deteriorating before her very eyes, and then she uh, is forced to. Uh, help him kill himself. It's not exactly the most uplifting story in the world, <laughs> you know, but, but you put it under the idea of a horror science fiction story. Um, it makes it more palatable. It makes it an easier story to tell when it's also something that you watch. And like you said, Justin, like with every year that you get older, you know, our bodies are different yeah. from when we were 20 to where we are now. And you feel a lump and you're like, Oh my God, am I going to die? You know, like we, we go through that and that is the experience in this movie. And I know we were goofing earlier, you know, like, Oh, this is a Valentine's movie, but there is a love story here too. In, in, in this script, in this story, in Cronenberg's really smart in the way that he weaves that in without making it be like a straight up love story. Um, I think a lot, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the the fields in which like he has the characters working, like Jeff Goldblum being a scientist, Gina Davis's character being a reporter, you know, who is interested in you know this development and his story. But what's great about this, and and you you texted me this before I had done my first watch, and I think you texted me and you're like, man, this movie just moves, and yeah, I, I had that in my head, and like immediately when it started, it's like they go from that party. And, you know, I looked at the clock and it's like within five minutes, you know, she's like in his lab and he's like yeah. show Ari showing her like, you know, and it gets and it gets the audience involved. And what I love about it is like since she's documenting him, we have two parallel stories going on. You know, we have the love story of them vibing off of each other 
and she's giving him the confidence he needs, you know, he's giving her the information she needs and they're developing trust and interest in each other. But we're also simultaneously getting the story of like how this logistically makes sense. Like, you know, what he's doing, why he's trying, you know, creating a teleport machine, like the science behind it. And then like, why, because a fly gets in there, their genes uh, meld and he, you know, becomes two different beings, you know, not just human, not just a fly. Going along with the idea of intertwining, you know, whether it is these deep, dark themes or a love story, like blending these things together, there's this fun thing that Cronenberg also does with the uh, how, how we watch Veronica and Seth fall in love. Like, it's not instantaneous, but it is through um, her documenting what he's doing, her recording uh, her watching, asking him to be introspective, asking him how does, you know, accidentally turning a baboon inside out, how does that make you feel? Having him voice his feelings all through the lens of a camera. She's taping it. She's recording it. And this idea in 1986 of self-documentation, it feels even in like 2020 feels really fresh and it also heightens that idea of looking at someone in a very intimate setting and being able to understand how you could fall for someone in a very short span of time. And even if it's, um, you know, the more hideous aspects of watching what someone's going through, it's the intimacy that brings you in. And that, I think, is one of the most important elements of, of watching this love story unfold between these two. I totally agree. We'll get into more of those uh, the cast and, and, and these characters after we come back from our next clip from The Fly. Sounds good. Why'd you scare her off? Jealous? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. You look bad. You smell bad. I've never been much of a bather. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I took them to a lab. I had them analyzed. The hairs? The hairs? Oh. Yeah, that's a strange thing to do. Not as strange as the results. The guy at the lab had trouble identifying them. He finally came to the conclusion that they were definitely not human. Oh. <laughs> Not human, Seth. In fact, very likely insect hairs. That's silly. That's ridiculous. Look. Now there's more. Look at your face. Something happened when you went through, Seth. You've got to get some help. I think you must be sick. You You're jealous! I've become free. I've been released, and you can't stand it. You'll do anything to bring me down. Look at me. Does this look sick? Does this look like a sick man to you? No! Stop it! You know any sick men who can do that? Come here. No! Sir. Wheels off! I don't need you anymore. No, wait! Seth, please! Wait! Seth! Don't come back! So, Lindsay, here we are. Uh, we're 71 episodes into this podcast, Oof, and I still yeah. have yet to grow tired about talking about the cast. 
It's, uh, <laughs> we always, you know, I think like it's like a default intro to our discussion too, but it always just comes up as something that's, especially when we start going to like find the inner workings and you're listening to, uh, you know, actor commentary or director commentary, how it comes together in that relationship between director and the actors and, and them bringing mm-hmm. a movie to life just fascinates me. And not just someone giving a good performance, I think like, you know, hearing how they developed the character, how that relationship worked, especially on a movie like this, because it is so intimate. There's so few characters in this movie. So, I mean, this whole story is riding on like three people's shoulders and most of the scenes in the movie are between two people, you know, either Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum or Gina Davis and John Getz. And it's kind of wild because when I was watching the movie and thinking about the cast, I always kind of thought about Jeff Goldblum as like, you know, he's like the main guy in this, but really Gina Davis is in it. Like when we're away from Jeff Goldblum, it's all Gina Davis. And then the majority of the time she's with Jeff Goldblum. So it's like, she's in the majority of the movie, uh, you know, like in almost all the scenes, except for, you know, the times when Jeff Goldblum is by himself, which isn't, which isn't too many in the movie. Yeah, it's funny that um, like the original 1958 movie really follows the the wife of the scientist, you know, and it's really her story versus um, versus the scientist that turns himself into the fly. And granted, there are some major differences between that one and this one. It is still kind of like it, it follows Gina Davis's experience. Now, that's not to say the the score of the movie, I would say, follows the feeling behind what Seth Brundle is going through, like that tragedy. But really, yeah, we're, we're seeing Gina Davis and how she is experiencing, whether it is the obsessive ex-boyfriend boss, sexual harasser, or, um, you know, her love and journalistic scientific interest, you know, Seth. And with every movie that we talk about, the the cast is always, I mean, we wouldn't talk about these movies if the cast sucked, you know, it always is going to be um, a a major uh, part to why the movie works. And it is always amazing to me how each story of how things came together is different. And this one, like the fly is completely unique. We've made it 71 episodes. And this story is pretty darn cool. Because I mean, the biggest thing for me, and it was a big gamble, was to cast your two leads who were in a relationship in real life. Like that's a massive gamble, but man, did it work out for this movie? Yeah, that would be terrifying as a director because you can only assume, I mean, granted, people are professionals, but like if you're in like a at home and then on set relationship, um, you know, if you get into a fight or whatever happens or you're unhappy with each other, that could potentially change the vibe on set. Yeah. You know? So that yeah. has to be but Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum had been together for a little while. This wasn't, uh, they hadn't just started dating. David Cronenberg said he was worried about that, but he also thinks that their love for each other was genuine on screen. There is a very like warm feeling that you get that comes across in their characters and that you see in the movie, um, even early on when they're kind of like, there's like subtle flirtations between the two. It always is striking to me the how, how they meet and, you know, it is like with a bang. It starts immediately that it, it doesn't feel like they are familiar with each other as like people, as co-people outside of the movie. Um, they do feel like people that are meeting uh, for the first time, you know, and 
you watch the evolution of them falling in love and it really is believable. And I know that obviously they know how to flirt with each other. They know how to make romance happen, obviously. But they were really committed to being emotionally involved in this. And I I think, uh, if I heard some stories correctly, that Gina was helping Jeff run lines like before she decided to audition. And I think as she was running lines with him was when she thought, hey, this is a really good part. <laughs> And it was Jeff that encouraged her to audition for the movie. And Jeff Goldblum, you know, I don't think he was anybody's first choice. They were looking for someone who was going to look more masculine because, like, you know, he gets stronger later on. Cronenberg and Stuart Kornfeld said once they started thinking about Jeff Goldblum, they're like, you know what? That's actually like he's like a good fit for this. And this is one of those movies, I, I think one of Jeff Goldblum's better performances, where all his like idiosyncratic beats and everything like work really well for this. And like when he's like sped up talking, he's like starting to become the fly and he's like talking really fast and having to talk all technical, like his enunciation and everything is like so clear. You know, I've always known of Jeff Goldblum as like, oh, he's like, a, you know, he's got weird tics and stuff and the way he says stuff. <laughs> Almost had become kind of like a Christopher Walken thing where in your mind you just think of like, oh, yeah, it's the cadence and it's the it's the pauses. And then I forget that before that became the standard, it's like, no, these guys like put in some like really unique performances. It wasn't this was like so unique. It was like nobody was doing that. And now it's like in pop culture and reference so much but when you go back and watch the fly you're like no this is like a more subdued version of that it's like not like if someone was like here's their impression of jeff goldblum you know <laughs> yeah and i mean it is true that jeff goldblum is unique there's there's no one that speaks like him or looks like him he is a very unique individual in some ways presented a little bit of a challenge he wasn't an ideal candidate for the special effects team he wasn't uh your typical standard cookie cutter looking man. So it was a little bit of a challenge for them. But as far as having Jeff Goldblum transform into into a creature like the fly, what he did with it is just something that I don't know if I've ever really seen another actor do. I don't know. Is it just me or does it really seem like he takes on what you would observe a fly exactly being like, like really herky jerky and and not just like the obsession with sugar but the impatience the you know chicken-headed movements not only that but the fusion with a human going through this metamorphosis like one of the worst things worst best things um about his changing for me is when he's talking and you hear him like wincing in pain and it's and it's like he's working the pain into how he's talking like that sort of thing like he wasn't directed to do that that was him you know that was jeff goldblum bringing an idea to what someone that's going through this horribly painful like there's a there's a there's a creature growing within him that is about ready to bust out that we see at the end of the movie. He's suffering. It's an amazing performance to watch an actor go to that level where it's not just something that they're performing, where it's almost something that he's just completely embodying. Yeah, it's a very physical performance. You know, we'll get to effects later on in the discussion, but a lot of the actors that they had looked at prior to Goldblum were, were like put off by the fact that they were going to have to put on special makeup effects and they were worried that it would mask their performance. And uh, he accepted that challenge like very headily. And even when he has, I mean, obviously other than when he becomes like 
unrecognizable as just Jeff Goldblum at the very end of the movie. <laughs> but yeah. like even those last few times where he's like got heavy makeup on, he leans into the performance. You still recognize him as, as Seth Brundle. And you got to think about it, this is a pretty wild performance because, you know, he's constantly changing. So like that's something, you know, you got to keep track of. It's like, okay, we're, you know, every... 15 minutes in the movie, you know, you're like further advanced in the stage of like becoming a creature. You're constantly having to like recalibrate like oh, how you're going to do this scene. A lot of work went into, you know, his performance in this movie. And if you sit down and just watch it for performances alone, you know, like you said, pretty amazing. He seems like the dream actor to have, excuse the crude phrasing that I'll say here, but he seems like the dream actor to have a guy in a rubber suit. You know, to have someone that's so made up, even if the effects hadn't been so spectacular as they were, he's going to make it believable just by his performance. But along with that, we have two other leads. Like we already said, Gina Davis and and John Getz, who plays Stathis Borens. Gina, her, her story of being cast in this is so funny to me. Like, not only did Jeff encourage her to audition for it, she was the first person to read for the role. And... I guess her audition was just kind of like, well, um, that was perfect. <laughs> what do, do we need to keep going on? And Cronenberg, like you said, you know, he was uh, a little hesitant about casting two people that were dating. So they felt obligated to continue on with the audition process and went through a number of other people auditioning. But really, at the end of the day, like no one was better than Gina and can you imagine like you're the first person auditioned and you're like no we still went back to you even though we're like a little timid about it but it's you're kind of perfect i love gina davis in this movie in many movies she does like doesn't have the and and not just only in like looking different than a, a typical like what the, what hollywood was casting for female roles in the 80s atypical to that but also bringing like a different kind of warmth, just comparable to like, you know, a couple years later in Beetlejuice. She just has like a completely like inviting warmth that you're instantly engaged in her character. I'm like, okay, th this person, I don't know everything about him yet, but you kind of want to learn it. Always like kind of kick off a role with, uh, with a little bit of um, mystery. What's funny is, you know, this was like her first meaty role. I remember her in Tootsie, and that was very much a background character, even though she was in multiple scenes. But aside from being in a few, like, episodes of, of television shows, I think she was in, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure she's in Fletch. And she was also in Transylvania 65000, and then The Fly, you know? And then kind of The Fly is what really made her into a bankable star, um, if that wasn't evident in Tootsie when that was her first movie. But really, she um, her performance at the end of this movie is probably, I think, one of my like top three favorite things about it. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I don't know if it's where she pulls off Brundle's jaw or where she blows his head off. But her reaction is... Like it, it hurts, it hurts to watch her because it, it feels, and maybe, you know, maybe that is coming from, maybe she's thinking about that that's, you know, her partner in real life. Maybe that's what motivated her. I don't know what it is, but tears are streaming down the woman's face. It is just one of the most powerful performances. Yeah, it's, it's a gut-wrenching scene. It doesn't hold back. Oh, that ending. <laughs> 
Um, another, I will say, uh, another performance uh, in that end scene is John Getz, Stathis Boren's. That man has made a career out of just being a little smarmy, sarcastic, little asshole. <laughs> but he does it so well. Yeah. Um, he's wonderful and blood simple. Um, we've already, we've talked about him before and don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. He's a great actor. Uh, that final scene where he's, um, I, I already told you about this, Justin, that where he's like parts of his body are like melted off by fly juice, you know? And yeah. he's just like, kind of like half shaking, but like conscious, but still conscious enough to shoot a gun with a stump of a hand. I mean, it's really great performance and even before that, um, him playing a, a tormented ex-lover and current boss of Veronica, just very much um, still in love with her. And like everyone in this movie, it's not it's not just Seth Brundle. It's it's not just Veronica. He's also going through a transformation. Everyone in this movie is going through some type of character evolution. And I think, you know, we see him. Um, OK, Seth Brundle's probably the most that we see go through a transformation. But Stathis Boren's, you know, kind of goes from being a grade A number one jerk to being um, kind of like an empathetic person, not only towards Veronica, but towards uh, Seth. I don't really agree with how he's empathetic towards Seth when he it's the whole uh, abortion thing. And he's like, oh, the father has to know. But like all of the three main people in this movie. Everyone goes through an evolution, including Stathis Borens. Um, obviously, Seth Brundle goes through the biggest, but if you really pay attention to the performances in this and what every character is going through, it's just a lot of uh, detail is, is paid attention to here. Well, yeah, no, I, I think uh, John Getz has a character arc like for someone who's like a secondary character and someone who starts out like kind of hate him yeah he's really not sympathetic at all like he's just straight up like terrible and like and it kind of <laughs> gets worse um so it is interesting that he becomes somewhat of a hero toward the end and you you're like no he does care about gina davis like you know he's got a lot of animosity toward her for not being together anymore but is the one person that she can turn to whenever um, and and because he also knows the stuff that's going on with Jeff Goldblum has basically been kept a secret. I mean, she's not telling anybody. John Getz isn't telling anybody. So as far as anyone else is concerned, I'm guessing Jeff Goldblum's bosses or whoever is funding this, like they don't realize that he's like, you know, slowly turning into a creature. I would say that's a safe bet. And I think in some ways you could be kind of happy when he's getting appendages melted off, but that he has shown even empathy for uh, Brundle after he's like realized that this is not, this is terrible. Like you do see him, um, he feels terrible for this guy. Um, I don't think he necessarily is like, we can do something to save him, but he feels bad for the dude. So I, I think in some ways, when you when you watch what happens to him at the end, you're not exactly cheering for it. You're just it's it's terrible the whole way around. And speaking of uh, appendages getting melted off, mm, yes, we'll talk a little bit about the effects. That scene in particular, <laughs> one of one of many gruesome scenes. And like uh, I will say, when I was listening to the commentary, um, listening to the commentary, not you know watching the screen the whole time. And I was like, oh, this is a good time to put my head down. I've already watched this movie twice. Like, 
with the full <laughs> impact of the, the the effects like um because they're they're pretty gross i mean this is definitely it's kind of a squeamish movie more so than i remembered and maybe maybe i've gotten like a little softer in my you know over the years but uh there's like two or three scenes in this that are just pretty straight up gross and John gets getting uh, his uh, limbs barfed on and melted by acid is is pretty disgusting. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the the hand getting blown off in RoboCop, you know, because he's like screaming and withering in pain. But they're not cutting away. I mean, they're not and they're not doing it in like a oh, this is like over the top violent. I mean, it's like feels very real and the pain feels real. It's a rough one. You know. I think because it's it's so intimate, it's it's weirdly, I mean, dare I say, kind of sexual in a way that like Brundle's barfing on him, disintegrating an appendage, and John Getz is like, like kind of going into shock, and his eyes are rolling back in his head. Like it's a very weirdly intimate, and I can't look away from it. It's disgusting, but I can't look away from it, and also knowing that once it started happening to him, it's just going to keep happening. Like he's already incapacitated, like it's done, you know? Um, but yeah, what, what a feat for effects, not only effective in how it makes you feel like your physical body watching it, the effects on screen, it, um, I mean, we always talk about practical effects here, but, um, it looks so great. It really does. And those were, um, I, if I remember correctly, all of those uh like fly barfing scenes right there, that's a animatronic brundle brundle fly that's doing that one and it still works. I didn't really think about how, how effects heavy this movie was and you know, was like watching it and thinking like, yeah, you know, this is really it it makes sense. I mean, we're we we have to see this slow transformation of a human being that looks normal to us that's gonna transform into a monster at the end of the movie but slowly we know we have to show something you know you need to see something looks convincing like the slow progression of of his body changing and and the you know i think the first effect which you know is simple effect but is probably the one that makes me close my eyes is the fingernail like falling off and uh, you know, if you've ever had a dream about your teeth falling, falling off, out, he pulls it off. Yeah, he pulls it he pulls off. There are like you know, teeth falling out. And like, um, I mean, I which just, also happens. His yeah, teeth also yeah. fall out. I mean, I've just I've had nightmares of my teeth falling out. I think that's a pretty common <laughs> nightmare. But you know, they're not like these big crazy special effects or these tiny little effects, but they have such a big impact, especially when seen in a close up. Man, an entire fingernail coming off, pulling it off. Uh, and it it goes back to that idea of discovery of something that's terrible that's happening to you. And it's so early in the process. And it's not just one fingernail. Just if this is your first time watching the movie, it's not just one fingernail. Um, the squirting, we're not, okay, we don't need to go even further. But that is, that's the one moment in this movie where mm, it's a 50-50 shot that I'm going to look away. But everything yeah. else I, I can I can handle. But that one, the fingernails... The fingernails a lot. There's a lot of great effects, whether it's just uh, whether it's the arm break when he goes to the random bar and uses his fly juice to disintegrate the guy's hand and then it breaks in the middle like that is an incredible effect or the bloody baboon, you know, when he first tries to transport something living that gets turned inside out. All of these little things are massively beautiful effects i know it sounds weird to say beautiful when it's something so grotesque but i think that's the trick in watching 
movies like this that can be so visceral and, you know, difficult to watch or if you're squeamish, but remembering that this is, I mean, this is artistry that's happening here and that it makes you feel that way. That's a really cool thing. Like that's art that's happening. And on top of that, you've got effects like how did they have Jeff Goldblum running up a wall and on a ceiling and it looks seamless. There are no cuts. How did that happen? You wonder? Well, what was really cool about that is they rigged up this whole system of like a a tube like ferris wheel and it was all very choreographed i think everybody on the crew went through it a time or two but it was this huge sewer pipe that they had rotating so they had a camera mounted it was moving with so it worked with the pipe as it tilted right so they couldn't have an actual set rotating so that's why it had to be all condensed into this and everything in it whether it was you know vomited up donuts (laughs) whatever a table whatever you know everything that is in that scene had to be glued down had to be mounted down because all of that is just a rotating tube you know it's not simple to construct but it is a simple idea when you think about it you know along with that the telepod that looks timeless to me it looks like it's something that could have been in the 1958 version it looks like something that could be in 2024 You know, it has this quality about it that just works. I mean, it's kind of womb-like. That's the first thing I think of. It is something that is um, disintegrating life and recreating life again. It's this, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but that's what it seems like. It it seems very womb-like. But the telepod itself was um, created out of a cylinder that was taken off of David Cronenberg's Ducati motorcycle. I think originally the idea was to have it looking more like a like a glass shower, something that was more phone booth-like, something that was more out of like the 1950s version. And and Cronenberg really wasn't down with it. I think he said it was it just seemed boring to him. <laughs> Which he's right. It yeah. is boring. It is boring. And uh, so uh, this idea came up and basically they took the cylinder off of Cronenberg's motorcycle, took it back, flipped it over. And that is exactly what that is, just on a bigger scale. I love the sleekness and the minimalist look of the, the pods because the movie, I think a lot of the reason why it doesn't look dated, aside from the effects still holding up, is those pods don't look like what you normally would see in like a science fiction movie where sometimes they try, they're just putting so many gadgets on things to say like, Oh, in the future, you know, there's like a million gadgets and button, a million buttons. Uh, whereas it's funny how the, I think 1986, the fly, like 20 years later, we have like minimalism and machines like Apple and all this stuff is like small and slick and there's not a lot of buttons, you know, it's like a good call to d- to do something that was going to look a little more timeless, you know, instead of trying to like creating something that totally isn't something that we've never seen before, you know, to, just to show that it's supposed to look like futuristic looking. <laughs> yeah, it was like they they tried just the amount without going over the top. That sort of thing. Yeah. And not that this movie was supposed to take place in the future, but you know what I mean? Like advanced technology is what I should say. Oh, you know, I know we need to close out uh, this effects section here, but, and this is something that I'm sure when I say it, if there's anyone out there that that works in the movie industry, they're going to be like, um, that's so remedial. I can't even believe you're bringing it up. But one thing that they did in this that I find really fascinating is using motion control camera work. And what, 
motion control is it's basically the camera is mounted on a dolly and it's operated it's programmed and operated by a computer and what it is is uh, you see this in the scenes where the camera kind of steadily moves into a shot directly looking at whether it's Goldblum or Baboon in the telepod. And this is presumably right before it's whatever's in there is going to be teleported, you know, for dramatic effect. How that shot is done to where the object inside is there and then disintegrates and disappears and looks completely seamless. There's no digital work done here. What's happening is there's two different shots done. The reason it needs to be done by a computer is because it has to be exact. There are two exactly the same shots done by a computer on a dolly, and it is dissolving from one shot to another. So it just looks completely flawless. Um, To me, I think that that is just magic. (laughs) I mean, I understand and I I appreciate that I can understand how it works because there's a lot in filmmaking that I it just seems like witchcraft. That one, I don't know, I just think it's really beautiful how it happens and that it happens not too much. They don't overdo it. But when it does, it's just seamless. And for 1986, again, just um, incredible work. Yeah, I think this was one of the first motion control shots in a movie. And uh, just to kind of end on effects, with the Academy Awards, the makeup effects hadn't really been a category for very long, maybe like five years. But The Fly did win for special effects makeup. Shockingly, Cronenberg has like never been nominated for an Oscar. Um, How has that happened? He has, you know, a few of his movies had actors and stuff be nominated, but he himself has never been nominated by name in any category, though he did say it was quite a thrill to uh, attend the Oscars for the first time. When The Fly uh, premiered, he, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, we were like, you know, way, way back up in like the third row. But, you know, he said it was awesome to see like a movie that he worked on, like get recognized by the Academy, which has to be a thrill, even if it's only for one category for effects but again they were such a big part of the movie and and made it what it is well i think there were a lot more award-worthy um aspects of the fly um i'm really glad it at least got acknowledged for uh special effects we should probably move on to our picks of the week here but um we'll close it out here just briefly um you know we've talked about howard shore he's done the music for multiple movies that we've done on this podcast um but uh has worked with David Cronenberg pretty much for most of Cronenberg's entire career, like doing the scores for uh, each one of his films. And he is a interesting composer because he, I don't, he's not a, a composer where I immediately am like, no, that's Howard Shore, you know, cause he does, he can change so drastically in, in tones and, and compositions for, for the movie, I mean, he really goes for the feel of a movie, not so much like big crescendos and stuff like that, you know, and like making things, um, I guess, like Mickey Mousey, you know. His scores feel like they are the musical equivalent to the story. And I know that that's something that either you can enhance scenes that are happening in a movie, but a lot of times his scores feel like they're just the undercurrent for the dialogue. And sometimes they can be huge, and then sometimes they can be more subdued. I think, I mean, it's probably just because we're coming off of Silence of the Lambs, but with the opening of Silence of the Lambs and the opening of The Fly, they're both so bold. And 
in essence, they give you all of the emotion that you were going to feel throughout both of the movies. I mean, that seems astonishing, right? That you can make all of the feelings that you're going to feel in like a two hour, hour and a half movie um, just in the first couple minutes, just yeah. in the music. You know, that that's really something that's overwhelming. Well, having him on board for this movie was it almost solidifies that you're going to have a perfect score behind it. You know, there was, there's a little fun fact. It's it's a wonderful thing about 80s movies that they really tried to um, have a theme song or have um, a song that they could promote and have a music video and really helped get word out uh, about the movie. Um, and that actually did happen with The Fly. Um, it was uh, by a guy named uh, Brian Ferry and the song was called Help Me. And did actually come to fruition. It was done, was put in, I think, the ending credits and just felt like, yeah, this didn't work at all. And was really being <laughs> fought for and I guess was was shown to Mel Brooks um, at the end. And he was like, yeah, OK, that doesn't work at all. But you can hear that song in the background of the bar scene when Brendel disintegrates the the arm of the gentleman that surely should have annihilated him there. When you say disintegrates, it makes it sound like he like it, his, arm, his arm evaporated. I mean, it might as well have, but yeah, it is just a bone protrusion, you know, I whatever. think if you call the hospital and you're like, what happens? Like my arm just got disintegrated <laughs> versus the bones like protruding through the skin. It paints a different picture. <laughs> They're like, we called NASA because you said your arm disintegrated. We didn't know what that was, but it's just a bone protrusion. The paramedics are bringing in a guy with a disintegrated arm. So they want us to put it back on or wait. Wait, wait, wait. That's what teleporting does. Just like you disintegrate, right? And then you reintegrate. The guy's arm just like, ah, disappears. (laughs) It's like... Captain to Stardeck, I've got yeah. this arm that I need uh, disintegrated right dude, now. Dude, he beamed his arm <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, dude, the other day I like totally disintegrated my pinky <laughs> finger. <laughs> like, We'll come back to the fly for some final thoughts, but let's move on to our picks of the week, which uh, both are very heavy in the gold bloom. Yours in the uh, also heavy in the Davis gold bloom which uh, I thought was a nice uh, touch. What can you tell me about Earth Girls Are Easy? That's a movie I've not seen since it was on television when I was a kid. If you were a teenager in the 80s, ultra hip and MTV was part of your soul, well, chances are you've probably seen Earth Girls Are Easy. If you haven't, you could maybe think that this title presents a cringy problem, but it's not like that, I promise. Continuing this week's sci-fi love story theme, it felt appropriate to do the Fly sequel to the Gina and Jeff love story, Okay, not really, but the two actors were married at this point when they starred together in this bizarre romantic fantasy comedy. Complete abandon is needed for this movie. It's out there, but so unique in its presentation. On the surface, it's a common story. Sweet, simple, California Valley girl named Valerie, played by Gina Davis, is content in her job and life, but then also faced with her fiancé cheating on her. And if aliens hadn't landed in her pool, she may even have gone back to her cheating partner. Yeah, that's right. You heard me correctly. Aliens crash land in her pool. 
While we come to know these gibberish, modified, valley-slang-speaking aliens as Mac, Whiplock, and Zebo, played by Jeff Goldblum, Jim Carrey, and Damon Wayans, can you even stand how awesome this cast is? That alone is a reason to watch this movie. Even above that, this is an adorable 80s-to-the-max story. Neon colors, dance parties, big hair, ridiculousness at every corner, and the one time there's even a half-gay joke, it's not even negative. Earth Girls Are Easy might be the most lovable, totally 80s movie. Watching this amazing cast submerged in all the neon of the decade, nightclubs, backyard pools, car chases, surf talk, totally idealized Southern California lifestyle, watching all these massively famous folks in such an off-the-wall movie is nothing short of magical. We've got a scorned woman and horny aliens, and once the alien fur is shaved off our three space invaders, we discover them to be extremely handsome, very human-looking guys underneath. Earth Girl certainly pokes fun at the superficial every chance possible. We've got dance-offs with Damon Wayans, an extremely effective PG sex scene between Gina and Jeff, and a blonde Jim Carrey impressing all the ladies with his freakish alien tongue. One beautiful aspect of many 80s movies is always the music, and there's a hell of a lot of attention paid to the tunes or background music in this one. In the first couple of minutes, we're already hit with the b 52 Summer of Love, one of the most criminally underplayed singles from the band. And later on, Shake That Cosmic Thing is also worked in. But then we've got Depeche Mode, Information Society, an amazing Hall & Oates cover of Love Train, and the most notable, since this is kind of a half-musical movie, multiple songs from Julie Brown. 80s MTV generation, y'all remember Miss Julie Brown, right? From introducing music videos in the network with her show Just Say Julie. Well, anyway, director Julian Temple and Julie Brown are the two brains responsible for this movie. Many of Brown's songs from her 1984 EP, Goddess in Progress, are included in the film. And the track Earth Girls Are Easy from that album serves as the premise for the entire movie. It's ridiculous to listen to the song after seeing the movie because, yes, it is really all of the film boiled down into one song. It's totally cute. And Brown performs a few times as well, along with the very sweet Gina Davis chiming in, too. With that album and the entire tone of Earth Girls Are Easy, it's so superficially funny, but then covertly humorous at the same time. There's backhanded commentary on culture, treating police like buffoons, valley girl lifestyle, dating life, and it's just so snarky and biting you can't help but laugh with everything every quippy line or lyric. And the same can be said for a, the ton of dialogue and bro-like behaviors in the movie. The otherworldly humor contained in the picture just has so much reckless abandon it starts to feel endearing. Plot-wise, this is a fish-out-of-water story and a romance. Three aliens with a darling, gentle, empathetic woman to protect them. No one, except for Valerie, ever understand or notice that they don't really speak any identifiable language, which is also kind of commentary on valley girl speak. And it's only Valerie who knows their truth and understands by inflection their gibberish. Oh man, I almost forgot to mention um, legendary comedian, Spinal Tap band member, frequenter of SNL movies, Michael McKean, pops up in this movie too as Valerie's totally gnarly pool boy. And if you think you've seen him do everything in his acting arsenal, think again. I kind of forget it's him because he does such a Great job of a SoCal surfer bro. Speaking of 80s bros, if the genders in this movie were reversed, I kept thinking this the whole time while watching it, in no way would it work today. Goldblum, Wayans, and Carrie come off as dumb, even though we know that they're not. They're just aliens. And Valerie does a good job of trying to hold back her immediate attraction to Goldblum, but it would have been far more over the top had she been a man. 
Earth Girls Are Easy is a whimsical farce that's almost too adorable at times, but has enough sarcasm woven all throughout to keep you wondering where in the hell is the story going. But like any true romance, we know who's going to end up together, and it's not going to be with Valerie's cheating piece of crap former fiancé. In music, humor, fashion, creativity, and uniqueness, there just isn't anything out there like Earth Girls Are Easy, so please seek it out. It's harmless, good-hearted fun. You're not going to be weepy at the end of the movie, but you may feel like you want to be swept off into space by an innocent intergalactic charmer. I really need to rewatch this movie. I I don't remember too much about it, but uh, I remember liking it so much when it came out. Right now it is streaming for free on YouTube. Oh, that's awesome. Because I do, uh, I was going to ask you if you had the DVD. Oh, I wish. I This is a movie I would totally want to own. Even though it's very dated, there's something about it that's always going to work. It's just a, it's just a really charming little movie. All right, I think it's your turn to tell me about Vibes. Well, speaking of dated movies, Vibes kind of fits into that category. It's uh, utterly stuck in the 80s, but uh, unique nonetheless in a lot of the same ways I think uh, Earth Girls Are Easy are. came out the same year, 1988, and it pairs Jeff Goldblum with pop superstar Cyndi Lauper. And she hasn't really done too many acting roles, but this being her first, she is the you know one of the main co-stars here. At first appearance, you know, it's kind of jarring. Because you kind of forget how thick Cindy Lauper's New York accent is. And I don't know if she's doing it as a put-on, really, or if it's that thick because it almost seems like a little bit of a parody. But if you can get past that and Jeff Goldblum being like at his utmost kind of strangest, uh, they both play a pair of psychics. All these psychics are paired together in this group and they're all learning about their different psychic powers. Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum uh, don't have an instant attraction to each other, but opposites do attract later on in this movie and they're paired up to go on a journey to the uh, Andes Mountains in Ecuador to help uh, a mysterious man played by Peter Falk find his son. Not long after that though they realize that they've been suckered into a plot to help uh, Peter Falk find a uh, mysterious energy force that's at, that's at the top of the mountain. He doesn't exactly know where it is and some people have died trying to find it. The movie opens and also Uh, The rest of the movie feels a lot like a Raiders of the Lost Ark Temple of Doom meets Romancing the Stone. It's really on the nose with that. I I think this movie um, in production was even like pitched as sort of a a Temple of the Doom meets Romancing the Stone type movie. And it is very, uh, when I talk about dated 80s, it feels very much in in that realm. A lot of of, uh, fog throughout the whole movie. It's like everywhere they go, once they get to Ecuador, it's like... They just had like a dry ice machine like blowing on the actors like everywhere they walked. And a lot of like kind of goofy, you know, espionage type situations happen where all these other psychics are also looking for this energy. A lot of double crossing. Nonetheless, it's all entertaining and fun. I never really do feel like I get that um, there's a lot of chemistry between Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper, but Toward the end of the movie, they do kind of click. It's one of those movies, again, and I feel like a lot of times with this podcast, I always end up picking these movies that make it sound like I don't like them as much as I do But when I suggest this. But again, this is one of those movies that's like perfect for a Sunday afternoon. You know, you flip it on, you're kind of relaxing. It's quirky, and if you're a fan of Jeff Goldblum or Cyndi Lauper, it's, I think it's kind of a must-see. Cyndi Lauper really you know, has a couple moments that I think are the best in the film, especially when she, uh, she kind of throws her voice to do this. Uh, I think it's the 
best part of the movie where she's trying to suggest that Jeff Goldblum doesn't like her because she's not like more of a prestigious, uh, wealthier person that he's used to dating. And she kind of throws her voice and she's doing an impression of, she was like, would you like it if I was like this? And when she throws her voice and does this impression, it, it kind of like, I rewound it a couple of times because it's like so wild. She does it so perfectly. Um, I wish there was actually more of that kind of humor and uh, weirdness in the movie than there was. But I really enjoyed this movie. It was one that uh, I had never seen, honestly, until a few weeks ago. And when, you know, we were kind of trying to figure out movies to do for Picks of the Week and have a connection, I, I thought, well, I'll try to find a Goldblum movie. And I stumbled across this one. And it looks like this one is one of those movies that kind of got buried. I don't know that it was very much of a hit and that many people know about it so check it out yeah this is going to be one that i need to uh, watch i don't know why i've never watched it i, I love cindy lopper and jeff goldblum well thank you so much justin thank you those are our picks of the week vibes and earth girls are easy both from 1988 here's your murray moment chicks dig me because i rarely wear underwear when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. The physical transformation of Seth Brundle got me thinking about how some idea of transformation happens in a lot of stories, or at least ones where we feel like we've gone on a journey with a character. That's what hooks us in. You might remember the metaphorical transformation Billy's Frank Cross character went through in 88 Scrooged. And with this in mind, and The Fly being our Valentine's love story, I started to see some parallels between the two movies. Really, this is just what happens when you watch a lot of movies over and over again. Whether we go from human to fly or curmudgeon to enlightened person, both characters hit a wall. Consumed by their careers and having these godlike complexes, these are men obsessed to where no one else really matters, except for one person, their chance-encountered female love interests. Gina Davis's Veronica is a street shooter, a good person, and the same could be said for the decent, caring soul of Claire, played by the wonderfully enigmatic Karen Allen in Scrooged. Claire's reappearance comes into Frank's life when he's breaking down, faced with confronting his personal demons. Similar to Claire, Veronica happens into Brundle's life right before his big breakthrough. Both women have seen the goodness that resides within these men. They know them pre-meltdown. Brundle and Frank have been disconnected from other humans for a while. Brundle becomes ruthless once he begins turning into a fly. Frank became ruthless once he got a taste of power. And both men lose themselves once these monsters take over. Brundle crushes Veronica after she refuses to teleport at his behest, then sleeps with someone else. Claire realizes she's lost Frank when he doesn't spend a specially planned Christmas with her and then deserts her for corporate advancement. Both Claire and Veronica are left bewildered. How could this happen? Why is he disappearing? Although The Fly and Scrooge have vastly different climactic endings, I'm struck by how I shed tears at both each time. Brundle is 99% gone, no returning, but still has the goodness within him to help Veronica aim the shotgun at his head, to save her, to save him. 
to save the world, probably. Brundle must die in order to redeem himself. The only true redemption is self-sacrifice at the hands of his love. For Frank Cross, it's Claire who's always been able to break his wall. The one who knows he's still a good person underneath his corporate jerk exterior. She never left him, and in finding her, he saved himself. She was his redemption. Frank and Brundle are both shown compassion at their worst by the two women who broke down their walls even against being treated terribly. Now, I'm not saying that either couple is a model for any relationship, but the crossovers here between the pairs from two different worlds going through such massive transformations show the universal story of what love can do. Or at least, you know, the movie version. These stories serve as metaphors for real life. Something so familiar, something we as the audience can cling to, either leaving us with a black pit of despair in our stomachs or our hearts full of Christmas spirit. Either way, it's a love story. And for The Fly and Scrooged, I've always felt like these movies don't get enough credit for their love stories. Something I also gotta add about Scrooge is that Billy's the entire reason that there's more of the Frank and Claire uh, relationship that was expanded in the story. He knew that the movie needed that heart against the bleakness. Anyway, both The Fly and Scrooged are cultural tales about mortality. Their dismounts are just different. But watch them both again and maybe you can see these connections and more between these two unlikely similar love stories. Well, thanks so much for that Murray moment. Of course. Did you have any uh, final thoughts on The Fly before we wrap things up tonight? I feel like this is a movie you can talk about at length, but... There's one thing that was cut out from it. And sometimes, you know, you're like, why did that get cut out? I wish they would have kept that in for the story for this or that reason. One thing I'm so glad that was cut out of this movie, and you can see it in the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray and probably on the DVD too, but is the infamous fusing of the monkey and a cat. Um, If you've seen this scene, you probably can't unsee it. Um, I think it just really... um, changes your whole opinion of Seth Brundle as he devolves into the fly and makes you be a little less empathetic towards him. Not to mention it is an awful moment to watch in the movie and really would taint the entire film had that been kept in it for me, but it it was, it was pretty bad. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's awesomely done. Like it, it looks fantastic. Um, from a special effects point of view, but it sucks to watch. It's pretty painful. It was in one of the original screenings, didn't they? And they ended up cutting it out because the audience had such an adverse reaction to it. Yeah, and I, I had the same reaction as, as those folks. And I I think, you know, you could choose to keep that in. As we learned in Ginger Snaps, like sometimes people are wanting to press an audience's, you know, button and know that um, hurting an animal can really do that. Uh, in this case... Ginger Snaps is a whole different thing compared to The Fly. The Fly, I'm really glad that they, they took it out. That was a good decision. Well, uh, I'm glad you brought that up as your last thought because mine is uh, is very connected to that. Ooh, what is it? There is a sequel to The Fly called The Fly 2, which came out uh, about two or three years after David Cronenberg's. And The Fly 2 uh, sort of continues the story. It's the, the baby is born and becomes uh, has special powers. And grows up to be Eric Stoltz, but they have him confined in a laboratory because they want him to eventually uh, continue the work that his father couldn't finish. And I did not make it all the way through the movie. The movie has uh, multiple scenes of this sort of animal violence um, with a dog. And I feel like the second time they do it, it, it was just too much for me. It's... 
it seems unnecessary and it also seems like uh, the movie just really didn't have too much going for it. There was very little story and it was repetitive and I felt like they were just like, well, let's just like bash the audience with some grotesque uh, animal <laughs> violence. And I've always read that that movie had bad reviews and I've always heard people say it's an awful movie and I'd never actually watched it, but I felt, okay, there's an opportunity here. I'm going to give it a chance. And yeah, I lasted about one hour and uh, I shut it off. So um, if you're a fan of The Fly too, I apologize. Um, you know, <laughs> well, we all like different things, but but I couldn't hang with The Fly too. I made it through the whole thing and it had been a really long time since I'd seen it. So it felt like a fresh watch. And yeah, I mean, as a continuation of the story, sure, watch it. Uh, I also found it to be repetitive too. And when I, I was texting you, Justin, while uh, I was watching it and you asked, have you made it, (laughs) have you made it to the dog violence yet? And like the first one I was like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that bad. And you were like, just wait. (laughs) That next one was pretty terrible. Again, something you can't unsee. Um, I don't know if that or the monkey cat is more painful, but maybe the dog is actually more painful now that I think about it. I think the dog's more painful just because it's like more sad. Yeah. It's sad. And it's, it's set as a sad scene and it is sad and disturbing, Mm -hmm. you know, so effective, I guess for the movie, but uh, too much for me. Yeah. Stick with the 86 fly. Watch the originals. The originals, they're, they're worthy of watching. I mean, all of these films, uh, so much work went into each and every incarnation of the fly. Uh, but this 1986 David Cronenberg version is far superior, in our opinion. Yeah. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our episode on The Fly. And just a, another reminder, if you've followed us all along here, we have switched our format slightly with our releases. Um, we're releasing every three weeks now instead of every two weeks, just to give us a little more time to, to work these episodes and get them as, as tight as we possibly can. If you'd like to follow us along on social media, if you haven't already, you can find us at Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. We seem to be the most active on Instagram, so check there for updates on episodes we have coming out. If you'd like to catch any of our old episodes, they're all archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There we also have a store which uh, all proceeds from anything you buy there helps um, put money back into this podcast. And we always appreciate any purchases uh, people make along the way. Again, thank you for all the people that made purchases around the holidays. That really helped us out a lot, gave the podcast a boost. Yes, thank you guys all so much. And if anybody has a special uh, VHS that they would um, like a handcrafted wooden VHS keepsake box, let us know. We have got so many VHSs that are just looking to be turned into a piece of art. So let us know. And coming up next in March, we'll be tackling John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. So that'll be a lot of fun. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys. <laughs>